It is a joy to be with you. If you are here and you're like, I don't have a Bible, a physical Bible, and you want one, if you would just raise your hand. We have some people in the back. They can get you a Bible. Maybe you forgot yours. Uh, And if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to keep the Bible uh, for yourself. But I'm thankful to be here with you this morning. I'm excited for the opportunity to speak. Uh, And we're going to start with a little story. Uh, From the outside, some things may appear to be foolish or or even pointless. Us as a group can agree on that, or or Christians, or society, or anything. And I want to tell you about some people uh, that many consider to be weird, maybe even foolish, some outsiders of society. These are the mystery people from just outside of Philly. As you know, I went home for... Uh, two weeks, maybe you didn't know, maybe probably, I don't know. I went home for two weeks, a couple of weeks ago, and I live outside of Philly about an hour, and you will find that if you visit and you stay there long enough and you're observant, there are some people there. They're often hidden. You don't know they're there. They're in the woodworks of society. They dress kind of country, maybe. Uh, they will probably wear boots, maybe cowboy boots, some overalls, uh, maybe even a straw hat from time to time, okay? We're not talking about a country music event, okay? You're not at a Luke Combs concert, okay? That's not where we're at. Those wouldn't be the weird people of society. Those would be the cool people of society if you're listening to country music. But some other things about them, they won't grow a beard. You're not allowed to have any facial hair before you're married. But, But once you're married... You, can, you have to grow facial hair, even if you only get a little bit of facial hair. Even if you just have peach fuzz, you have to grow it. That's what these people do. You must have a beard once you're married. Uh, they choose to go all natural in different ways of hygiene. They just decide to smell like themselves sometimes, all times. They also pay with cash only. Okay? There's no credit card linkage to these people. If you run into them and they're trying to pay for something large, they will likely have hundreds or even thousands of dollars in their wallet. Cash. No cards. They're always looking for a ride. Okay? They're looking for Uber all the time. They love volleyball. I worked at a volleyball store for three years, and these are some of the most faithful customers. They love the sport of volleyball. They work long and hard hours. They also don't have a cell phone. Okay? They don't have cell phones. Maybe a little better clues for you all. Many live on farms. They might even be on horseback from time to time. Uh, the women will often wear head coverings. They call them a bonnet. They often have big families. And the dead giveaway. You guys are used to six lanes of traffic here in Los Angeles. And if there's a slow driver, you just go right around them. But in Pennsylvania, there's one lane going each way. Okay? And sometimes traffic just stops. You're going about 10 miles an hour because up front, there's a horse and a buggy following along behind it. And it's holding up all of traffic. These are the Amish. The Amish people are just outside of Philly. And if you grow up there, they're all around society. You see them. They're friendly. They're nice. If you run into them, uh, they speak English. They're normal people, but they live in the woodworks of society. And many people would see them as probably weird or or outcasts. 
And it might even appear to us that it would be foolish. Okay, we were like, you want to live like that? No phones, no electricity, uh, no, no TV, no video games ever, no credit card. You got to pay with cash. Like, that may seem foolish to you, but to them, they think it's appropriate. They're, one of their verses they live by is they don't want to be of the world. So they, they see those things as worldly things. And they're hard workers. They're family-oriented. They don't want to have distractions with phones and those things. But the point I give you, they can be so outside of society that you just think they're completely weird. Their belief system, you might not agree with. But there's actually some other people who are also depicted as weird for what they believe in. And it's not as weird as you may think uh, because they're labeled weird or even foolish by society. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, apparently we are going over this in the reading program tomorrow. I didn't know that. That's not why I picked it. I wanted to preach this passage because I love the passage. So we may also discuss it tomorrow if you come. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting around verse, or starting at verse 18. We're going to look at, at a belief system that to many people is, is unbelievable. They don't have a way to understand it. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 through 31. You can follow along as I read. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, That there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may abolish the things that are, so that no flesh may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. This whole section is about the word of the cross, the word of the cross. In other words, the message of the cross, the gospel. This is the entire story of salvation in Christ. Okay, in verse 17, just before this, Paul says that the word of the cross will not be made empty. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel. Okay, so this is the gospel of God. The entire story from 
Christ's virgin birth, fully God, fully man. In the carpenter's son, not great in appearance. In Isaiah 55, betrayed by those closest to him. In Judas, hung on a cross, dead, risen again three days later, conquering death for all who believe. And in summary, this is about everything about Christ in his earthly ministry. So what we're going to do today is we're going to learn about the word of the cross and how it's seen by different people. There's going to be some good, relevant applications that will be made. Okay? So the first point that we're going to see in verses 18 through 25, the word of the cross is foolishness to unbelievers. Okay? The word of the cross is foolishness to unbelievers. Just how the opening illustration, you may not understand the way the outcasts from Philly, the Amish people may live. Actually, the word of the cross, the message of salvation, the gospel is something that is seen as foolishness. Not only not understood, doesn't make sense, but foolish, dumb. Not, no unbeliever views the cross as wise. They view it as, as foolishness. In some way, it's not good enough for salvation. Either Jesus isn't strong and the wise leader you need, but as it says at the start of verse 18, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, to the unbeliever. And Paul goes on, he says in verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. He's quoting back to Isaiah 29, 14, and Sennacherib was threatening Judah, okay, the nation of Judah. Deliverance was going to come, but these people thought deliverance was going to come from themselves and their own strength. And God says, no, it's not from your own strength. It's not from your own cleverness. It's not from your own wisdom. Salvation is going to come from the Lord. The Lord will save them. You're not going to get to God. You're not going to get salvation from your own intellect, You're not your own faith. Rather, it's going to come from the Lord. Uh, a simple point here is that you don't become saved by the external traditions. Okay? You don't get saved by doing something. You know this. You don't get saved by singing the songs, attending the church. That doesn't get you to God. It's impossible. You cannot get to God through human wisdom. Uh, you can't do it. The wisdom of the wise is destroyed. The cleverness of the clever is set aside. It is no good. You cannot do it. Verse 20, he asks, Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has God, not God, made foolish the wisdom of the world? He's saying, the wisest people of that time, you haven't found your way to God. Even some of you all I know are into uh, different conservative thinkers. People even like a Ben Shapiro. Someone who's brilliant, who's able to articulate arguments, understand arguments, understand worldviews whether you agree with him or not, but he can't accept Isaiah 53. He can't accept that Jesus is the Christ, doesn't accept the word of the cross. There's other brilliant people, uh, scientists, they deny the creation of the world by God, say some kind of evolution. It's not the way the Bible says. They don't accept the word of the cross. These brilliant people who know much more than you and I do about the world can't accept the wisdom of the cross. You would think that of all people who would figure out how to get to God, it would be the sharpest minds, 
right? The PhD people, of all people who are going to find salvation, would be those who hold a PhD, those who hold a master's degree, those who even hold a bachelor's degree. Those would be the people, those who create a company or those things. Those would be the people that should be able to find their way to God. But God says, no, that's not the way I do it. The wisdom of this world does not necessarily lead to the knowledge and salvation of God. This salvation does not come from human intellect. The unbeliever is not able to understand. Verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The world through its wisdom did not come to know God. The world in its own wisdom cannot come to know God. And this tells you something about your own human condition. Whether you're a believer or unbeliever, the gravity of the human condition is that you can't reach God on your own terms. You can't find God. You can't find salvation in your own strength, your own wisdom, your own understanding. You can't get there based on your own thinking. You think of the Tower of Babel. They couldn't reach God. God must condescend to us. He must make a way for you to be able to reach him. You cannot reach God on your own understanding. Uh, And he did that in the cross. That's the whole point. The word of the cross. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are saved, it's the power of God. If, if If you're trying to get to God and you don't go through the word of the cross, the message of the cross, the message of Christ, you will never find him. It's like trying to get into a house with the wrong set of keys. Okay, you can't use your car key to get into the house. You just, you, there's no access. Access is denied. You must use the right set of keys. The only way to get into the household of God is through the message of the cross. And that's the point that he's laying out here at the beginning. And he talks about some people who, why don't they believe? Why don't you believe? Verse 22, for indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. Jews wanting a miraculous sign. Jesus did signs all throughout his ministry. You think of water turning to wine. You even think of his death and resurrection. He died. He's in the grave. He, was, he had clothes on. They wrapped him. The stone was rolled in front. Three days later, the stone's gone. The clothes are laid there. But they didn't want a crucified Messiah. They wanted a Messiah who would come and rule and reign over the Romans. The Greeks wanted some kind of new truth, something to debate, something to argue over. Not something to submit to, but something to think about, something to put up for examination. They choose not to believe in the cross, so they regard the cross as foolishness because that doesn't bring them their Savior, Messiah, over the Romans, and that doesn't give them something they can debate over. They They disregard it as foolish. In verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. That believing in the cross, they regard you as foolish. But conversely, while the unbeliever thinks it is foolish, all unbelievers take the word of the cross as foolish. The believers know experientially and from the word that it is the power of God. So point number two, the word of the cross is the power of God. To believers. You see how the unbelievers don't view it as anything significant. They view it as foolish, worthless, of no value. But to believers, it is the power 
of God. It's not just historical fact. It's not just that Jesus existed. It's not just for good theology, but it's saving power of God for salvation. And he almost, he almost mocks them in verse 20. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made him foolish in the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. The world didn't figure it out. He's going to reveal in another way. God was well pleased, end of verse 21, through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. God hasn't revealed it through intellect, but he's revealed it through the cross. A simple message of the cross is how you can understand salvation, how you can come to faith. He's not only ordained that Christ would die, that Christ would save you, but that also uh, you would come to believe in that through the preached word. If you can look at Romans 10, I think it'll be up on the screen, Romans 10, verses 14 through 17. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The way God saves sinners is by preaching the word, okay? By preaching and proclaiming the word from a pulpit and from interaction, proclaiming the word, speaking the word. That is how God saves sinners. And this informs your evangelism. When you evangelize to other people who don't know Christ, you're not going, you're not going first and foremost to prove some kind of intellectual argument about God. You actually go with them with the good news of the cross. And when you go with them with with the good news of the cross, that is how God chooses to save sinners. When you evangelize, you tell them of the message of the gospel. You tell them of Christ's life, his death, and his resurrection. The power of God is found there. That is where the power lies. It's not simply enough to say, evaluate the evidence, if Jesus existed. You're supposed to proclaim the good news. Repent and believe in Christ, the entire story. For the one here today who's skeptical and looking down your nose at Christ and has heard this message over and over again, who knows the truth about Christ, that he may have existed, but does not want to submit to him, that thinks there's another way to survive or God or doesn't want him, understand that Paul addresses this in verse 25. He says, The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Saying you, you can't outsmart God, you can't out, you don't have more strength than the Lord. You can't do it. The only way to get salvation in the Lord is through the cross of Christ. You believe in the message of the gospel. Death is certain. Death is coming. Death is real. It was the theme all of last year at camp. Death is coming. The only way to reach salvation with God is through the message of the cross, to trust in the work that Christ has done. For the believer, 
in your evangelism as you talk to unbelievers. You need to understand that the world won't accept the message. Just like someone can't convince you that you should get rid of all electricity for the rest of your life and go live in the woodworks. You can't always convince the world that the cross is not foolishness. Okay? To those who are perishing, verse 18, the word of the cross is foolishness. It is, it is worthless. It is for naught. It is for the intellectually dumb. Uh, it, but the power of God is in that message. The very message that they say is foolish and doesn't apply is the very message they need to hear because that's where the, message, or the power of God lies. How do you be saved? You need the message of the cross. And you don't have to convince with worldly arguments. The cross is the wisdom of God. The cross has the power to save. When you're faithful to preach the cross, God will be faithful to save some. And you see the difference in how they're viewed. And and Paul here, after verse 25, he says, the unbeliever views the cross as foolishness. The believer views the cross as the power of God. He's experienced that. But now he switches. And point number three, the word of the cross comes to the weak. Okay, The word of the cross or chooses the weak. Paul switches his attention from discussing that to the believers at Corinth. He says, to the believers. For consider your calling, brothers, in verse 26. And he repeats three times. When things are repeated, it means he's trying to draw it out. Look at verse 26 with me. For consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise, according to the flesh, not many haughty, not many noble. He's cutting them down to size. Maybe some were important in the world. Some maybe uh, were wise. Some maybe were mighty. Some maybe were noble. But the vast majority of them were not. In human standards, they were viewed as foolish. Uh, in, In human standards, they were viewed as weak, and dumb, in, in human standards, most of them were not born to high, high families, noble families where they had respect and honor. Uh, and he says, remember your standing in the world. He says, maybe even at the church, you're a big fish in the small pond. Some of you know about this. If you were homeschooled, how many of you graduated valedictorian in your class? If you're going to graduate valedictorian in your class. I did. I was homeschooled in high school. Graduated valedictorian. Some of you homeschoolers are there. You're going to be the valedictorian of your class, but your class is one. Or if you're a twin, maybe two. Either way, you'll be salutatorian, even if you're second. Okay? You're going to get an honor. Maybe you're the best in gym class. You dominate homeschool gym class in your own bubble of the family and the little brother and the little sister. Yes, you assert your dominance there, and that's great. But he's saying... The world does not view you that way. And in the world, you're, you're not that way. You're not viewed as smart, mighty, or noble, the vast majority of you. And the point he's making is that you weren't chosen for your talent. Most of you were not chosen uh, for your strength. You weren't chosen for your might, your wisdom, your status. Okay, that's the whole point, to show that God is going to use these weak people to show that the Savior is powerful. In verse 27 to 28, he wants to use you because you are weak. In verse 27, 
But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may abolish the things that are, so that no flesh may boast before God. The, says the foolish, in the start of verse 27, he's chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The foolish. Literally in Greek, what this word sounds like? This word sounds like moron. Moron. Literally, he's calling you a moron, foolish, stupid. Any one of those adjectives works. That's what he's calling these people. In the world, they view them as foolish. And he wants to use these people that weren't the smartest, weren't the brightest, but he's giving them the message of God. Because they've received the message of God, they are wise. Even in comparison to the smartest of the world, they are wise. He, then he says, he chooses the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The weak, the, the feeble, the sick things of the world. The ones that are not going to start on Friday night football game. The one who is not going to dominate in the weight room if you lift. Rather, the ones who actually have impediments. Think of even Moses and Pharaoh. The Lord uses Moses with a speech impediment. He can't, uh, he can't even speak clearly. And the Lord uses him with Aaron. Okay, and the next one, base. Base and despised. Verse 28. The base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. Based means not noble birth. Despised means rejected disdain. He basically says the people that no one else would pick in society, the people that are the outcasts, the people that no one sees as you, you, don't, you don't want them on their team, uh, you, don't, you don't see them as useful, they're, they're of low status in the culture, uh, they're rejected, they're disdained by all. That is how they're known in the community. He says, no, the Lord says, no, those people... I'm going to choose those people, and I'm going to use those people. And finally, in verse 28, he says, the things that are not, literally that don't exist, not existing, the ones that in the eyes of people aren't even there, the one that you look right by, you enter a room, and your eyes go to, to the people of prominence and friends, the people you want to talk to, and there's other people that you don't even see, people that don't exist in the eyes of society, that are irrelevant, and he says he's going to use them to abolish or nullify the things which are. He says, those are the very people I want to save through the power of the word of the cross to actually show that these are my people. He's not choosing them because they're mighty. He's not choosing them because they're powerful. He's not choosing them because they're wise. He's not choosing them because they're prominent. He's saying, no, I don't want any of those things. Think of King David, right? All the brothers are lined up. Where's David? Where's he at? Out shepherding the sheep. Wasn't even considered. Right? Had no, he almost didn't exist. Till no, God doesn't want any one of these. It's not the right person. And then David, then he comes into the scene. But in no other place in society are these people given good treatment. In no place in society are these people thought of as high and mighty. And these are the believers at Corinth that he's describing. He's speaking to these believers. For consider your point that not many were wise. You were not wise. It says, so why? Why does he choose those type of people? He chooses those type of people, verse 29, so that no flesh may boast before God. 
no flesh may boast before God. So he's saying to the believer, I didn't choose you because of anything of you. I chose you because of me. I didn't choose you because of you. I chose you because I wanted to choose you. And it takes all responsibility out of the hand of the believer, puts it all on the Lord to give him the praise and him the glory. You even think there's another example of this in the Old Testament with Gideon. We have a slide here. Should show you at least verse 2. Gideon, these people were fighting Midian. They're getting ready. And he has 32,000 men. And Yahweh said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. Why? Lest Israel honor themselves, saying, My own hand has saved me. Thinking that it was my own might, my own strength, my own wisdom, uh, my own skill has saved me. He says, no, I want to show you that this salvation you're going to get is not of you. It's actually of the Lord. And we're going to make it brutally honest. And he goes on. He says, so now call out in the hearing of all the people, saying, whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 left. So he cuts the troops to 20, from 32,000 to 22,000, or cuts off 22,000 down to 10,000. So you go from 32 to 10. And Yahweh said to Gideon, no, it's still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there, and it will be that he of whom I say, this one you shall go, but everyone whom I say, this one shall not go, he shouldn't go. So they go to the water, and Yahweh said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water up with his tongue as a dog, you shall set him aside. And so also everyone who kneels to drink, the number who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, not kneeling or getting down as a dog, was 300 men. But the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. So Yahweh said to Gideon, I will save you. I will save you with 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go, each man to his place. So he says, Gideon, I don't want you to get it confused that you somehow saved these people, that you conquered this city. It's a work of me. So intentionally, I'm not choosing a lot of you. I'm not choosing the strongest or the wisest. I'm just choosing the people that I want so that they won't say, my hand has saved me. Salvation is from the Lord. And here is where we can quickly fall into danger if we don't remember this truth. Okay, When we, God reminds people that salvation is his work. When we forget that salvation is a work of God. If you're a believer, you've been saved by grace. You know it had nothing to do with your own works, but it goes to the back of your mind that it was all God. And soon it starts creeping in that you revert to a thinking that's faith and works. Mostly faith with just a little bit of works. And you do it almost not realizing it. But let me ask you, what is your confidence in life and death? What is your confidence Does it begin with, because I believed, because I placed my faith in God, because I realized God was real, all those things? Don't think first person, me. Think third person, because Christ saved me, because he opened my eyes, because he gave me a new heart. I was blind, and now I see. In the Heidelberg Confession, he says, this gives you the idea of the thinking him. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but I belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 
He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. It's all about Christ. Christ preserves me in such a way. Okay? Then he goes on to the Spirit. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life. And you're thinking as a believer, how do I, how do I grow in faith? How do I grow in assurance? How do, I, how do I know I'm saved? You don't think of your own, even faith in Christ. You think of Christ himself. That Christ himself has saved you. Begin with him, not I. You're looking at the word of the cross. That work is what saved you. Not even your faith in that work. That's the means to get that work. But not even your faith was that which saved you, but Christ is what saved you. His death on the cross, his blood was shed so that you would be saved. And these truths protect you from thinking too much on yourselves. And even though knowing that you first trusted in Christ for salvation, but then living as if salvation might depend on you. When you think too much of self, that, it, that it's, well, it's how much I believe in God. Or it's, it's how much I trust in God. You start to think one of two ways. It'll either lead to arrogance in that I'm doing well. well I must be saved. I'm, I'm living more righteous than I did before. And, you know, I, I haven't struggled with that sin in a while. And I'm growing in God. People think I'm more godly. So I, I must be saved. And you start thinking, well, it's Christ. But I'm, it's me too. An arrogance about your work in salvation. Or it turns to despair. As you struggle, and like Romans 7 says, the the flesh is still there for the believer. And you struggle with it, and you see fruit in your life that over time you're progressing in righteousness and killing sin. But the struggle is still there. And you haven't killed all the sin yet. And you start to think, how can I be saved? I still have sin left in me. But as you stop looking at self and start looking more and more to Christ, what he has done, that is what gives you confidence in the gospel, that you look to Christ. Because he is the one who has done it. It wasn't anything to do with your own flesh. Final point I have is point number four. The word of the cross should drive us to honor Christ. This is God's work. We've said that, but I want to show you just how much Paul points this out, okay? That it is Christ's work. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Start of verse 30. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Saying it wasn't something you did, it's actually something he did. You came to faith in Christ, not because of what you did, but because of what he did. Look back. The verse 28, halfway through. And the despised, it's us, God has chosen. Verse 27 at the start, but God has chosen the foolish things halfway through. And God has chosen the weak things. So twice in verse 27. In verse 26, for consider your calling. That's like a calling of election. He's chosen you. Verse 24, but to those who are the called, both the Jews and the Greeks. It's the power of God. Those who are called. All the way back at verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved... It's the power of God. Okay, it is the power of God. It's his power. It's his calling. It's his electing. It's his choosing of the believer. And you look at verse 30 then. And what does he give you? By his doing, you are in Christ. So he gives you Christ, chooses you to be in Christ, who became to us 
wisdom from God, which you didn't have. You were regarded as foolish. You were foolish. And righteousness, which you also didn't have. He declares you righteous, that your good works could never meet up to it, but Christ's works did lead up to it. He was righteous. He fully fulfilled the law. He had no sin of him. And sanctification, that he enables growth and redemption, that he purchased you with his blood. God chooses to put you in Christ, the weak ones, the foolish ones. He gives you wisdom. He gives you righteousness. He gives you the ability to grow, sanctification. And he ultimately purchases you with his own blood so that it's sealed to the final day, so that nothing you do can take you out of the grace of the Lord. Think that God has done all this. And if you're here today, you are just like these Corinthian believers. Most of you were not wise, were not strong, were not noble. But if you're chosen by God, understand that it is a work of God to have done that in your life. Not because of what you've done, not because of your own intellect, not that you were smarter than the unbeliever, not that you had better desires than the unbeliever, uh, not that you were of a better family than the unbeliever, but because God has chosen to do this work in you. And, and you think, I think even back to the thief on the cross, right? Thief on the cross, uh, we just learned about this on Wednesday, if you're here for Andrew Curry. He says, think about this like interaction in heaven, right? So there's Christ on the cross, Two thieves on each side, likely murderous, treasonous thieves. Uh, and on one, he just mocks him. And he's just mocking Jesus. And the other one then stops the other guy and realizes that this is the Son of God. And he cries out for mercy. And the Lord gives it to him. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. And you think about that believer, someone who trusted in God, Never went to a church service, never witnessed to anyone, never prayed, like consistent prayer life. He didn't talk to Jesus, but he never had a consistent prayer life. You think he's, he's there at the gates, well, have you read the word? No, doesn't even, doesn't even know anything about the Bible, only knows about Christ. Doesn't even know what the favorite book of the Bible would be, because he doesn't know any books of the Bible, literally just a thief who Christ saves, well, then, then how do you make it there? You make it there because Christ chose you. Christ knows you. And Christ said, you can come in. It had nothing to do with his, his own works, his own efforts. He had no time to do anything that was good or righteous. It was all about the grace of God as seen as Christ, as seen in Christ. Because the sinless Savior died... My sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So that in your life, there's no boasting in self if you're a believer. You boast alone in the Lord. And that's what verse 31 says. So that as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And it comes from Jeremiah 9. And this is what we'll close with. It should be up on the screen. Thus says Yahweh, Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. 
But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh, who shows loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares Yahweh. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the work which you have done through Christ for this word of the cross, which is foolishness to those who are perishing, but is the power of God to us who believe. Lord, I pray that for those who believe here, we would grow in appreciation for what you've done, that we would grow in love for you, and that we would grow in real humility and thankfulness to you for for saving us, weak, foolish, unknowable, despised of society, that you would set your love upon us, Lord. We don't know why, but we are thankful. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.